Hello, welcome to Dungeon Delving. I'm Brandon Wagner, and today we're delving into the large size races of Volo's Guide. Just kidding, there aren't any, because Wizards of the Coast are cowards and don't want to make a large size player race. Instead, we're talking about Furbolg and the Goliaths, who both have an ability called Powerful Build that make them count as one size larger when determining their carrying capacity and the weight they can push, lift, or drag. So for some mechanics, they count as large, but for others, they count as medium. Um, so the Furbolg and Goliath are both these reclusive late races that live in parts of the world that are either far away or otherwise considered inhospitable by other races. And they both tend to keep to themselves and have uh, societies that maybe aren't alien to like humans, but are certainly a little different. Um, so we'll dig into the Furbolg first, because they, the two don't have a ton of similarities, but there's a few. But we'll start with the Furbolg. The Furbolg, I had a misconception about the Furbolg before I started reading up for this episode, and I thought that the Furbolg had this very strong, innate Feywild connection, almost like, like they were from the Feywild. That's where they originated. And I was wrong. They don't actually have an innate Feywild connection. They do have a very strong connection to nature, and uh, specifically the woodlands, but um, not the Feywild specifically. And I thought this because uh, my friend Adam played a Furbolg that was a homebrew class that was like a Fey warrior. So I just kind of thought that he picked that homebrew class because the Furbolgs had a Fey connection, and I was wrong. Um... That said, because they have a really strong connection to nature, you can absolutely make the Fey Wild and the Fey an important, close thing to their society. But I digress. So, Furbolgs, they, ha as players, they have some pretty neat abilities. They have plus two wisdom and plus one strength. They've got uh, Furbolg magic, which lets them cast, detect magic, and disguise self once per short, each once per short, short rest. They have Hidden Step, which lets them turn invisible once per long rest. And they have Speech of Beast and Leaf, which lets them talk to animals and plants. Limited communication. So already you're probably like, yep, well, they're going to be druids. <laughs> um, Druid and Ranger are the two like really obvious, I think, classes for them. Um... There's a little sub-note in Volo's Guide that talks about Furbolg classes, talking about most of them being druids, rangers, or fighters. Um, their rogues are scouts. Barbarians are rare, except among clans that face constant threats. Clerics and paladins are generally dedicated to nature gods. Warlocks are very rare, but sometimes come from uh, packs with fey beings. Monks are entirely unheard of but a monastery might take in young survivors. And then wizards arise when the clan becomes friendly with elves. Um, oh, they also mentioned bards. Preserve the clan's lore, sorcerers defend their communities. So, really, Volo's Guide just kind of gives you, I think, every class. I don't think any of the classes in the player's handbook weren't touched on there. Um, but Druid and Ranger, I think, are the super obvious ones. But, um, you know, like... Uh, Oath of the Ancients Paladin, I think, is a really good choice for a Furbolg. Um, Oath of Vengeance Paladin, who their 
their home was destroyed or whatever is a good one. Um, Nature Domain Cleric, obviously pretty solid. Uh, I guess Volo's Guide kind of covered it for me. <laughs> um, so I'm going to have to come up with some more stuff to talk about. <laughs> Furbolg. So the Furbolg don't really leave their their home and their people. So this is a race that if I was DMing and one of my players was like, hey, I want to play a Furbolg, I would sit down with them and be like, all right, your backstory needs to like really go into why you're not staying with your people. This is a race that I don't want to... I don't mean to like limit people playing it, but you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to be a Furbolg because you got to... And I'm out here adventuring just because I want to go on adventures. But... Like, Furbolg really need to have a reason. And they give you some of those in... Volo's Guide, again, gives you, you know, like, they're outcast for having murdered someone. They're outcast for damaging their home territory. Their clan was slain by humanoids, dragons, demons, etc. Uh, they were separated and got lost. Um, their homeland was destroyed by natural disaster. Their quest was ordained by omens. Or they were dispatched on a mission by tribe elders and those are all pretty solid and um those also a lot of those also give your dm a wonderful opportunity to come up with adventures and content for your campaign um such as you hear about the evil humanoids that destroyed your home like you figure out you hear where they are maybe it's gnolls you know maybe you're on an adventure because gnolls destroyed your home you escaped and you want to you know, now you don't have a home, so you're out wandering, becoming an adventurer, and then after a couple adventures, you catch wind of a marauding pack of gnolls led by a gnoll with a specific feature that you recognize as having been the leader of the ones that destroyed your home. So now that becomes your adventure is to eradicate these gnolls. Um, what am I thinking of? Uh, in Volo's Guide, they talk about this, there's this little excerpt from, I don't think it's from a real book, but it's, you know, a little flavor excerpt that they put in the books. They talk about how the Furblogs killed a dragon that these adventurers were, uh, tracking, and then sent them, the they left the dragon's head in their camp, and they're like, yeah, that's a warning, that means that our business is done here and we need to leave. So you can kind of have your Furbolgs have been not evil, not malicious, but maybe standoffish. <laughs> and maybe that plays into your Furbolg character's personality a little bit. You know, your Furbolg doesn't necessarily trust um, non-elves. You know, they look at elves and like, elves and gnomes, or at least forest gnomes, and like, oh, these guys are fine. But, you know... Typhlings, dragonborn, humans, dwarves, maybe halflings, rock gnomes. These are people that aren't as concerned with their effect on the natural world. So maybe your your furbolg character is initially at least less trusting of those races or um, is generally mistrusting of those races until individuals prove that they're trustworthy and not out to destroy nature. <laughs> Um, 
as for using them as a dungeon master, that same aspect is something that you really should consider, is what is the Furbolg's relationship with other races, and do they even have one? Do they even have a relationship with other races? The Furbolg live in these very secluded forests, far away from other civilizations, where they just kind of tend to the wood, and... So what is the relationship with other races? Do the elves know they're there and they have a trade relationship with the elves? Did the humans know they're there and know to stay out of their forest? Are they figures of legend? It it really comes it can come down to what level of fantasy you want to put in your game. If you're playing a low fantasy game but furbolgs are in it, maybe they're a legend. You know, it's 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 a the furbolgs are a story that's passed down through the generations in your human civilizations. And, you know, only little kids really believe that they exist. You know, by the time you grow up and stop believing in things that are fantasy, you don't believe in furblogs anymore. But maybe then you encounter them. Um, In a more high fantasy setting, maybe as people know furblogs exist, but they don't know where they are. Um, most people have never seen one, maybe. Um, what, how do I want to put this? The forest where they live, does, what, what kind of reputation does it have? Like, maybe it's a forest area in the region that's like, yeah, you just don't go there. Um, hunters that track game into this area of the woods disappear. Um, loggers that go in there to cut down trees disappear. Um... And we, like, find their tools on the edge of the forest. And then it's, it's you know, how do you want to have it? Do you want to have it be an entire forest, like like Mirkwood? Where it's, um, or is it the Entwood in Lord of the Rings? Where it's like, yeah, you don't go into that wood. It's dangerous. Um, and it's the whole, this whole forest is like that. Or is it one specific region? It's like, hey, when the trees start having moss growing on the whole tree then you know you're in, that's the border of Furbolg territory. You don't go past there if you're in the forest. You know, do you want your Furbolgs to have dominion over a specific part of the woods or the whole thing? Um, another way to do it as a DM is, well, I guess not another way, but another aspect of having a Furbolg wood in your world as a DM is having that forest be inherently different than the other forests, including the forest where gnomes or elves live. Um, when I think of the kinds of forests where elves and gnomes would live, I think of a forest that's, there's a lot of wildflowers, it's, like, very picturesque and, and pretty, and, you know, the sunlight filtering through, and, um, there's some undergrowth, but it's not crazy. And then when I think of a Furbolg forest, I think of just this dense, not dark, but dim wood that's very, uh, there's a lot of animals. You can always hear animals scurrying about, and um, maybe there aren't a lot of large predators because the Furbolgs are, it depends on how you want your Furbolgs. Are they protecting the small animals, or are they protecting the natural order? Um, How are they fitting into that? circle of things uh, but i think of like the furball the for the area of woods around where their village is is very thick and difficult to travel through but then when you get to the part of the woods where their 
home is maybe there's like a it's more idyllic it's more like a stream there's um it's a little more open um there's gardens all over the place and it looks more like an elven city maybe um i like the idea of furbolgs and elves kind of coming together for like their their art and architecture so your furbolg homes are maybe just more rustic simple versions of elven architecture you know you think about elves having these grand beautiful buildings and then you go to a furbolg town and it's the buildings are built in a similar way like they look like elf buildings but they're made with more simple means like they're just wood they're not beautiful intricately carved wood they're like log cabins but they you can tell they have that that touch of elven inspiration um for both speak giant so maybe you want to have kind of a giant connection in your for your fur bulgs. maybe fur bulgs are a type of giant because you have um there are creatures that are kind of considered giants that aren't true giants you know you have ogres and ettins and trolls and maybe fur bulgs. so maybe they're considered giants but they're small giants you know because they're only eight or nine feet tall they're not um these titanic things um or maybe in your world there aren't true giants but there are furbolgs and furbolgs are called giants you could do that um another thing with the with the furbolg i think the last thing i want to touch on before we move on to goliath is that feywild connection that i talked about way in the beginning that they don't actually have give it to them make them have that feywild connection maybe the where the furbolg villages there's a fairy ring in the center um, or just some portal to the Feywild, you know, um, and the Furble guard it. Maybe they're from there. Maybe the Furble came to the Prime Material Plane from the Feywild, and that's where they originate. And maybe in your game's um, celestial history, I guess, the Furbolg we're from the Feywild and we're bidden to go to the Prime Material Plane to be guardians of nature. And so that's that's the role they fit. Um Furbolgs have a lot of options for you creatively that are kind of built into them, but they are all centered around their relationship to nature and the woodlands. Um I guess it doesn't have to be the the woodlands either. You could have if you could break away the mold a little bit instead of having your furbolgs live in a deep forest or ju- or a jungle or a swamp, you know, where there's lots of trees. Maybe they live in a in like a, a in a grassland in a savanna. Um, you know, they're they're watching over the herds of zebras and uh, the giraffes. Um, in that like that big like African sub-Saharan African savanna type area or they're in the mountains you know maybe they're up in the tundra far away and maybe they're nomadic that's another thing you can do if you want to have your um furbolg not be in a forest where they live they could be nomadic they travel with the caribou you know um there's one particular herd of caribou in your world that never seems to get smaller and only ever grows and it's now known as like the thundering herd or something and it's never gets smaller because nobody can hunt the caribou from it because the the furbolg are there protecting that herd and they travel with it 
So your furbolg don't have to be woodland dwellers. They just really should be natural guardians. Goliaths are a little different. Goliaths are really big, really strong, um, and they have this, these two, like the three things that are kind of hallmarks of their character and of their society are competition, fair play, and their survival of the fittest. Um, Goliaths that can't, adult Goliaths that can't contribute are exiled, um, they're all about challenges and um, focusing on self-sufficiency and individual skill, and they're all about fairness. And a lot of this, a lot of this comes from their their home. They live really high up on the mountains. Um, in the the mountain-born trait of the Goliaths is they're acclimated to high altitude, including elevations above twenty thousand feet. So. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they can just go really high up. They also have uh, adapted to cold climates, which is pretty cool. So, um, for player characters, they get plus two strength and, and constitution. So, just from that mechanical standpoint, your Goliaths very much want to be martial classes. They want to be barbarians, they want to be fighters, they want to be rangers, maybe. They want to be... Um, Paladins, if you are going to give them a little bit of magic, um, maybe clerics. Um, if you want to be like a paladin that does a lot more sword swinging than they do spell casting, then Goliath's a good choice. Same thing with your with your cleric. If you want to play a cleric that's just like I'm just gonna hit things with my mace and sometimes cast spells, then <laughs> your Goliath is good. Um, the other thing too is you can supplement. If you want to have the good spell casting ability, put your high rolls into that. And then, you know, your strength and constitution get supplemented a little bit by your natural ability scores. Um, what else we got here? They have natural athlete, giving them proficiency in athletics. They have stones endurance, letting them, um, once per, once per short or long rest, they can reduce the damage they take by 1d12 plus their constitution modifier. And then they have that, you know, the powerful build that I mentioned earlier. And, of course, the Mountainborn. Um, so if you're going to be playing a campaign where you're going to be going into the cold north or the mountains or whatever, you should be like, yeah, I'm just going to play Goliath so I don't have to worry as much about the environmental hazards of this campaign. Um, if you are going to play a Goliath, one thing I really, really like about them is their... their I, their ideal of fair of fairness of fair play so you're if you're playing like a goliath fighter then or a or a goliath barbarian when you're not raging you won't attack enemies that are prone maybe even help them up maybe it's like your attack knocks an enemy prone so then you like reach down and like come on get up and pull them up before attacking them again um just this character, you have this very rigid character who very strongly holds to this idea of fair play. So you're not going, you're going to resist or outright refuse um, subterfuge and uh, tactics to um, 
give yourself a really big advantage over the enemy, but you're absolutely in support of them if the enemy has a big advantage over you. You want it to be fair. Um, you could play, you could basically make your uh, Goliath monk Goku and be like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not using my full power until you are proving that you're strong enough to take it because I don't want it to be unfair. So you hold back until your opponent shows you that you shouldn't. Um, another idea I really like with their like very rigid, stoic characters is just make your Goliath Drax. They already kind of look like Drax. <laughs> so like the, if I ever do play a Goliath, I'm not even going to hide it. My Goliath Barbarian is going to dual-wield daggers and be named Drax the Destroyer. And he's going to make terrible jokes and not understand uh, metaphors. <laughs> um, just these, like, they're really honor-focused. I really like the idea of, like, a um, a samurai, a fighter with the samurai martial archetype. And just kind of be like this Goliath Ronin that wanders the mountain villages fighting monsters and protecting people and just has this cool like this really because they're big they're like what where's their size here seven and eight feet tall wing 340 pounds so it's just this massive massive samurai with this big two-handed i think it's called nodachi are those big samurai swords um those huge katanas and just be like yeah i just had this big big katana and i just chop things up with it because i'm massive it's like playing if you play uh, final fantasy 14 it's like playing a rogadin and being a samurai so you're just this hulking guy with this huge sword and you're like yeah i have a lot of finesse and talent with my blade it's not just brute force but it's also huge because i'm huge <laughs> um as for casters if you want to play a goliath caster i would personally lean towards druid and then just theme your spells that you choose every day around your mountain environment i really like it's something i really like about druid is excuse me they have a lot of like environmental spells so you can really theme your character around like yeah i'm circle of the land mountains so i have my circle of the land spells but then the druid spells that i'm going to prepare every single day are the mountain ones like spikes and earth shatter and earthquake and stuff like that just these very like earthy rocky spells um as for using goliaths in your world what kind of role do they have are they maybe they uh they're why are they up in the mountains other than the fact that they're tough as hell and they can live there um <laughs> maybe your goliaths live around artifacts or places of power um i have a campaign coming up where my players aren't going to interact with an artifact and that was stolen from goliaths and the goliaths weren't using it their society wasn't built around it in the fact that they use its power or anything but they're aware of it and their society was placed where it was to protect it and someone stole it. And maybe that's a part of your, um, the role they play to your story. So uh, if any of my players ever 
listen to this, there's your spoiler for our next adventure after the one we're in right now, is something got stolen from Goliath, and you guys are going to interact with that, most likely. Um, unless you do like you did in the last campaign, where I told you don't go somewhere because I wanted you to go there, and you listened to me. <laughs> um, but Goliath's existing as... You know, they don't have... What am I thinking of? They don't have the, um, they don't have, like, the, I don't want to say it's xenophobia, but it's a, uh, mistrust of outsiders. They don't have that the way the Furbolg do. So, finding a Goliath village in the mountains, um, isn't necessarily going to be, like, a, oh my gosh, we're saved. Because the glass can be like, yeah, we only, yeah, our, our resources are really limited. If you want to share in our food and our warmth, you've got to earn it. So maybe your players are lost in the mountains, find a Goliath encampment, and the Goliaths are like, yeah, we'll let you stay here tonight and we'll share our food with you. But tomorrow we're going to fight a dragon that has been terrorizing us and you're going to help. Because if you want our food, you have to help us protect our homeland. And... So you can make that, the relationship that your party will have with Goliath is always a, we will help you, but you gotta earn it. You gotta pull your weight if you want our, if you want to partake of our limited resources. You've gotta, you know, earn it. You have to, you have to pay for it and not with gold because gold is useless to us. And that becomes, that can help the Goliaths become a really, it can become a foil to your party. If your party has accrued a lot of wealth and have used that as as a crutch, I guess, to get through roleplay scenarios where they're like, yeah, we're just going to bribe our way through everything we can because we have a lot of money. And then when they're adventuring through the mountains, they come upon Goliaths and, you know, maybe they have they haven't been able to take a long rest for an extended period of time because whenever they try to, something happens because they're in this really harsh environment full of things that want to hurt them because there aren't um there aren't other ways to get survival you know the only way to survive in these harsh mountains is to fight for it so it, they haven't been able to take a long rest they haven't been safe they haven't felt secure for a long time um, their resources are starting to run thin. They're running out of food and water and spell slots. <laughs> and then they come upon this, this town in the mountains. And then they're like, all right, good. We finally, a place where we can, we can rest. And they're like, hey, let it, can we stay here? And they're like, uh, no, <laughs> you can't stay here. And then they're like, well, what if we pay you? And they're like, um, no, we don't need money. Money is not a thing that we use. Um, or they say, or they straight up say, yeah, you're welcome to stay here. But if you do stay here and sit by our fire and eat our food, then you have to then help us with something. You have to do the, help us with this dangerous task. And then your players are like, uh, we have our own thing going on. We don't want to do this dangerous task. And how about we just give you gold? And the Goliaths are like, yeah, we have no use for gold. And then you create an opportunity for your players to be like, all right, well, let's, I guess we'll go on this side quest with the Goliaths. Or they can just up and leave and have a new enemy. <laughs> um, it's a good, the Goliaths offer a good opportunity for your players to have to make a choice 
that will absolutely affect their adventures in a region. And, um, uh, hold on, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put my thoughts together. Your Goliaths being, they have the opportunity to create either a very strong ally out of the Goliaths, you know, if they if they do a lot to help the Goliaths every time, maybe your characters aren't going to be spending a, a long amount of time all at once in the mountains where the Goliath lives, but they'll probably travel through there multiple times. You have the opportunity to be like, yeah, you can make a very strong ally out of the Goliaths by treating with them and doing things their way and making an effort to understand their thought process. But by that same token, if you don't do those things and push against them and treat them badly, then you will create a powerful enemy that will make it so you don't want to go through, you don't want to travel through those mountains. Like if it's like, yeah, we have to get to the other side, we're going to go around because we pissed off the Goliath last time we were there and we don't want to deal with that. Um... Another idea for Goliath outside of their home is, you know, are they mercenaries? Um, do, if, you're, if your Goliath society is getting large, you know, a large society in a bleak mountain setting is not ideal because more mouths to feed with their limited resources becomes more difficult. So maybe that's why there are Goliaths outside of the mountains. Um whether it's your player character or an NPC, they come down because they're like, yeah, there's too many there's too many mouths to feed and not enough food, so I volunteered to leave and go become a, a mercenary, an adventurer. And then you have, maybe you have these NPCs, Goliaths that have a reputation. And maybe you don't just say they're a Goliath. Maybe like your, your, your players start to hear about this mercenary in the area that they're in that is like this huge hulking nine foot tall guy with a huge axe made of stone that is unstoppable in battle and they're like whatever he's not nine feet tall whatever his gigantic axe the head is not the size of a child like it's it's there's no way and then they walk they go into a tavern and they see this hulking goliath with his huge stone axe with the head the size of a child and they're like well okay he's real um, I do think that Goliaths can make really interesting villains. Their concept of fair play and competitiveness together will make a really compelling... It makes it hard to make a villain because there's not a ton of villains that are like, yeah, I'm all about fairness. But you can do it. You If you can make a, vil a Goliath into a particular focused villain, they might be... A really good villain a villain that's always that has taken a special interest in your party because like these guys are really powerful and strong and they're a, they're actually a challenge to me so this this villain just shows up repeatedly to try to compete with them and beat them and they always win the, the party wins and he goes back and it's like i must get stronger and then comes back stronger and stronger a good recurring side villain maybe Maybe not a villain, maybe it's just like one guy that just has like a grudge with one of your players and every now and then it shows up and they're like, let's fight! Let's prove which one of us is stronger. Um, so that's really all I've got for these two races.
I think they're really neat. Um, they don't thrill me as much as a lot of the some of the other races that I've delved into in my previous episodes. I do think they're interesting. Um, I have definitely have ideas bubbling on how to use them in my world as these um, isolated but impactful groups. Um, but really, there's I don't really have anything else for these two races. I think they're neat. I would like to play either of them at some point in my life. Um, so yeah, that's all I got for the Goliaths and the Furbolg. I plan to do my next episode next week on Kenku, Lizardfolk, and Tabaxi. And whether or not I do that one next week or not depends on my brother. My brother plays a Kenku and has played a tabaxi and wants to play a lizard folk and i invited him to join me for next week's episode so assuming his schedule being compliant <laughs> next week will be on those three races if not it'll be on underdark races um we're getting into the end here i think i've only got a few episodes left i've got the three races for next week the underdark races and then I've got the uh, um, Eldrin, Shadar Kai, and the Gith for like outworld races, races from other planes. But um, so yeah, we'll talk a little bit more in the coming weeks about what's going to be coming for this podcast after I get through all the playable races because that is coming up. But that's all I've got for today. See you guys next week. <laughs>